0: This morning's first reading from Daniel, we have a beautiful description of heaven. with some very important details in that description of heaven. And if you're listening closely to the first reading from the book of Daniel and also to the gospel, which we just heard, you will see that some of those Specific facts, those descriptions of heaven line up perfectly. Because what's happening in the gospel, as Jesus is being transfigured before the eyes of the apostles Peter, James, and John, he is being seen by those three disciples as he would be seen in heaven, accompanied with Elijah and Moses to his left and right. So the disciples are seeing Jesus as he would appear in heaven in all glory, majesty, power, and honor. So it makes sense that the description we hear in the gospel matches up with what we hear of that beautiful description of heaven in the book of Daniel. Now the gospel this morning was recorded by Matthew, who was at the foot of the of the hill, Mount Tabor. He was not one of the, the three chosen by Jesus to go up to the top of Mount Tabor. You'll see this throughout the Gospels that in some of the more important parts of the ministry, Jesus chooses Peter, James, and John to go with him. And the others are either left outside the house or left at the foot of the mountain. But after his resurrection from the dead, I'm sure that Peter, James, and John said, you know, we, our Lord asked us not to tell anyone what happened until after he rose from the dead. But let me tell you what happened up on top of Mount Tabor that day. I imagine it was very difficult for them to, to hold that in, to keep that secret, so to speak, because once again they're seeing Jesus in all glory and power and majesty and wonder. If there is any doubts in that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, in the minds of those three disciples they were certainly put to rest. Those those fears, those anxieties, those those doubts were put to rest immediately during the transfiguration. And what happens? What do those three disciples do when Jesus is transfigured? When he's shining with, with brilliant radiance and light? Do they go up to him and say, Lord, you look pretty good. High five. No. They get down. On their knees. They lay down prostrate. Because they know they're in the presence of God. They know that. And that's their natural reaction. You'll see that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. When a person... Realizes that they are in the presence of God, they're immediately on their knees, or lying down, face down to the ground, in homage, in adoration, in wonder, and reverence. Because they know that there's something, there's someone greater than them in their midst. They know that the extraordinary, that the all powerful, all knowing, all loving God is in their presence. And we see that, once again, it's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament when people do this, they're showing great reverence through their postures, their bodily actions, and their words. The importance of reverence when encountering the living God. And it's important, I think, to remember that the same Jesus Christ, Son of God, who appeared, who uh, was transfigured before the apostles on the top of Mount Tabor 2,000 years ago, about 8,000 miles away from here. It's that same Jesus Christ, which will be made physically substantially present on that altar in a few moments from now. It's the same Jesus Christ, the same Son of God in the tabernacle directly behind me. The same Son of God. I think it's important for us Remember that and to also remember the importance of reverence. When I first arrived here in Pondere County 22 months and five days ago, I know some of you are counting. I said in the first month to all five parishes, all five congregations that I was going to emphasize two or three things for the parishes here. And one of those was reverence. And I told the people, I said, this is going to help you pray more. It's going to help you to recognize Jesus Christ in greater ways in the sacraments. It's going to help you to open your eyes. And it's going to help your sacramental life. It's going to help you to come closer to God. And I know for a fact that that's, that's true for many of you. I know for a fact that many of you are praying now more than ever. Maybe you're praying that I should leave, but you're praying more than ever. (laughs) And I, I said that we're going to emphasize reverence because the fact of the matter is it works. It works in helping us to develop a better prayer life. When we enter into the church and we recognize we're not entering just a, a Grange building or a grocery store or something. We're entering into a sacred place. And the word sacred means set apart. It's set apart from the world. And so my actions in the church, my behavior in the church, my words in the church, my conversations, everything else should be different in the church. It's sacred. It's set apart. It's holy. It's holy especially here in the sanctuary, especially in the tabernacle. We have things here in the sanctuary which we only use in the celebration of Holy Mass. They are sacred. They are set apart from the rest of the world to be holy, to worship God in reverence. In reverence, it does work. If you look at the parishes which are growing in this diocese right now, and this is... This is pretty much true for the rest of the nation, too. If you look at the parishes in our diocese, which are growing, the priest and or the congregations are very reverent. They recognize that Jesus Christ is truly present in the tabernacle. They recognize that their words or actions should be different than everything else that they do in life when they enter into the church. They recognize they are in the presence of, of the Son of God. Just as the three disciples were on the top of Mount Tabor 2,000 years ago, people recognized that and they showed reverence. Once again, if you look at the parishes which are growing in this diocese, and some of them are growing very quickly right now, there's a great sense of reverence in those parishes right now. After Vatican II there were some experimentations which entered into the church uh, mainly in the liturgy and although a lot of people say that the bishops had intended these experimentations to, to be brought into the church the documents of Vatican II tell us a very different story in fact there are 16 documents of Vatican II One of them is written specifically by the bishops of Vatican II to guide and direct what the liturgy, especially the Holy Mass, should look like and the purpose of Holy Mass. That document is called Sacrosanctum Concilium. You can look it up uh, on any search engine. It will come right up, the Vatican website, uh, English translation. It will come right up, and you can read through it. And many of those instructions in Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium are contained in the general instructions of the Roman Missal, which is the, the red book on this altar, which the priest uses to celebrate Mass. And if you were to read through Sacro Sanctum Concilium, you will see that what the bishops of Vatican II had intended for the liturgy seems a little different than what the majority of parishes in the United States are doing right now. In fact, if you read through that document, if you read through the instructions of the Roman Missal, I'd be happy to show you at any time. So you can read them yourself. You'll see that the the St. Anthony's is actually closer to what the bishops of Vatican II wanted than I'd say 95% of the parishes in our nation. By what we sing, how we sing, what we say, what we chant, how we chant it what the priest does, what the priest doesn't do, what the congregation does, what the congregation doesn't do. A lot of people, once again, they say that, well, Vatican II changed all these things, but the experimentation was not intended. And once again, you can read through Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium, and it will tell you exactly what the bishops wanted, but we can also look at a few other things, uh, such as the letters of a, a young priest in Vatican II. He was... Uh, a secretary for an archbishop during the meetings which all the bishops gathered this young priest was was taking notes of what the what the pope was saying what the other bishops were saying the conversations in developing the the 16 documents of Vatican II. and this young priest within just a couple of years of the council ending this young priest had written on four different occasions four different occasions saying that that what was spoken about and decided within Vatican II is very different than what people were putting into practice following Vatican II. He said it was very, very different. That a lot of the things which these experimentations which emerged in the liturgy were never intended by the bishops. And this is from an actual priest who was in the meetings with the bishops and recording these things. That priest's name was Father Joseph Ratzinger who would become Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger and then Pope Benedict XVI. And you can read those letters. They're all online. Many of these experimentations, they removed reverence from the liturgy. Many of these experimentations they they tried to turn the church into something more about community outreach or like a community center than a house of worship a place in which we give reverence to God who is truly physically present a lot of these experimentations these ecclesiologies they tried to turn the church into a, a social justice agency. That's not why Jesus Christ established the church. It wasn't for community outreach. It wasn't for social justice. It was to worship God. Once again, these ecclesiologies, these, or these typologies of how people see the, the Catholic church when they, when they started experimenting, they, they really reduced Jesus to something other than the Son of God, which we see in the first heresies of the first, second, third centuries of the early church emerging. There's a lot of heresies that say Jesus wasn't completely and totally God. But many of these ecclesiologies, many of these experimentations after Vatican II, they, they place Jesus as some type of CEO of an institution which he just gives his vision. Or he's like a board of directors, kind of giving direction, and that's it. A lot of these ecclesiologies, they they see Jesus as a friend whom you go and meet at a community center, at a social gathering. But Jesus Christ is something more, much more. We hear it in the, in the recounting of the Transfiguration this morning in the gospel. And also, if you pay close attention to the second reading, which is from St. Peter, he was there. So this is a first can, first-hand account of the Transfiguration. In the second reading, Peter's telling us what happened up there and what he, what he saw and what he heard. He sees the Son of God in majesty and glory and power, and he hears the voice of the Father come from the heavens, from the sky. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's the father. God the father saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And this beloved son of God the father, he deserves worship. He deserves reverence. He deserves a title greater than CEO of some social justice agency. He deserves more than just being the head or the board of directors of a, of a social club. We all have an innate desire to do what the, the three apostles did on Mount Tabor, to bow down, to get on our knees, to lie on the floor when we're in the presence of God. Because you are created in and through and for Jesus Christ. You're created in the image and likeness of God, redeemed in the image and likeness of God. And St. Bonaventure would say that all of creation, especially humanity, has a vestige. Creation has a vestige or a footprint, a, a, basically a, um, kind of like a, a mark, a maker's mark, especially in the human heart, from God. And you have an innate desire because of that mark to worship God. And when we use that desire to worship other things or other people, we're, we're not going to be fulfilled, and that's just a fact. But we have, all of us here, through our baptismal character, we have an innate desire in our heart to worship God with reverence, with reverence. Because if we treat Jesus as somebody other than God, if we don't give great reverence to him, in the liturgies and in our personal prayer, are we really saying that he is the son of God? Or are we treating him more like we would a a CEO or board of directors or a drinking buddy? Over the next few months, we'll be, I'll be, um, Catechizing you and teaching you about some of the other ways in which we're going to grow in reverence here in the parishes here in Ponderay County. I'd ask you to keep your heart and your mind open to it, and I can assure you that none of these are the result of a good idea fairy visit. None of these are the result of, of my own creative intellect because I don't really have a creative intellect. I can assure you that everything which we will be everything we have done in the past twenty-two months and everything which we will be doing in the near future here at St. Anthony's and the other parishes, it's straight from the instructions of the Roman Missal. It's straight from Sacrosanctum Concilium, straight from the bishops of Vatican II. So, somebody will will tell you, if somebody will say to you, well, Father's doing stuff that Vatican II doesn't want. Well, that's not exactly true, because we will be using Sacrosanctum Concilium, the actual document, for our guide here. And I'm going to give you all homework today, and I want you to complete it within 48 hours. And this is going to show you the importance and the power of reverence. And if you complete this homework, your eyes will be opened. I promise you this. Some of you know that I was a scientist before entering into seminary, and so I believe in... Uh, I. I did a lot of experiments uh, in the army as a scientist and I, I don't believe in experimental uh, liturgies, but scientific experiments is just fine. But I want you to try out this experiment within the next 48 hours. I want you to go home and sit in your favorite chair, your most comfortable chair. Most likely it's in front of the television. I don't know why, but it's probably in front of your television. Sit in that chair, turn on the TV, make sure the remote is in your hand and your favorite beverage is in your other hand. If the chair will uh, recline, put your feet up. Just relax, watch your favorite show. And while you're doing that, I want you to pray an Our Father, a Hail Mary, and a Glory Be. Okay? Got that? So far, so good? In your favorite chair, TV on, beverage in your hand, praying our Father, Hail Mary, Glory Be. Next, turn the TV off, put down your beverage, get out of the chair, get on your knees, close your eyes, bow your head, put your hands together, and pray in our Father, a Hail Mary, and a Glory Be. And you will see the difference. You will see the difference. What posture and reverence does for your prayer. The same thing is true in the liturgy. So as we continue with this Holy Mass, we pray in thanksgiving for the Son of God who has loved us and redeemed us, who was transfigured 2,000 years ago, yet shows himself to us in his flesh and blood to us at this Mass and every Mass. Our natural response? Approach him in adoration and reverence. Praise be Jesus Christ. And now